Watch us on YouTube and Facebook. Listen to our podcast and support us on Patreon. Thanks for stopping by. Plotinus, the philosopher of our contemporary, seemed ashamed of being in the body. So deeply rooted was this feeling that he could never be induced to tell of his ancestry, his parentage, or his birthplace. He showed, too, an unconquerable reluctance to sit to a painter of a sculptor, and when Emilius persisted in urging him to allow of a portrait being made he asked him, is it not enough to carry about this image in which nature has enclosed us? Do you think I must also consent to leave, as the desired spectacle to posterity, an image of the image? Given this determined refusal, Emilius brought his friend Carterius, the best artist of the day, to the conferences, and saw to it that by long observation of the philosopher he caught his most striking personal traits. From the impressions thus stored in mind, the artist drew the first sketch, Emilius made various suggestions towards bringing our resemblance, and in this way, without the knowledge of Plotinus, the genius of Carterius gave us a lifelike portrait. Plotinus was often distressed by an intestinal complaint, but declined clisters, pronouncing the use of such remedies unbecoming in an elderly man. In the same way he refused such medicaments as contain any substance taken from wild beasts or reptiles, all the more, he remarked, since he could not approve of eating the flesh of animals reared for the table. He abstained from the use of the bath, contenting himself with a daily massage at home. When the terrible epidemic carried off his masseurs he renounced all such treatment, in a short, while he contracted malign diphtheria. During the time I was about him there was no sign of any such malady, but after I sailed for Sicily the condition grew acute. His intimate, Eustochius, who was with him till his death, told me, on my return to Rome, that he became hoarse so that his voice quite lost its clear and sonorous note, his sight grew dim and ulcers formed on his hands and feet. As he still insisted on addressing everyone by word of mouth, his condition prompted his friends to withdraw from his society. He, therefore, left Rome for Campania, retiring to a property that had belonged to Zethus, an old friend of his at this time dead. His wants were provided in part out of Zethus' estate, and for the rest were furnished for Minterni, where Castricius' property lay. Of Plotinus' last moments Eustochius has given me an account. He was staying at Putili, and was late in arriving. When he at last came, Plotinus said, I have been a long time waiting for you. I am striving to give back the divine in myself to the divine in the all. As he spoke a snake crept under the bed on which he lay, and slipped away into a hole in the wall. At the same moment, Plotinus died. This was at the end of the second year of the reign of Claudius, AD 270, and, as Eustochius tells me, Plotinus was then 66, I was at Lilibium at the time, Aemilius at Opimaea in Syria, Castricius at Rome. Only Eustochius was by his side. Counting 66 years back from the second year of Claudius, we can fix Plotinus' birth at the 13th year of Severus, AD 204-5, but he never disclosed the month or day. This was because he did not desire any birthday sacrifice or feast. Yet he sacrificed on the traditional birthdays of Plato and Socrates, 
afterward giving a banquet at which every member of the circle who was able was expected to deliver an address. Despite his general reluctance to talk of his own life, some few details he did often relate to us in the course of conversation. Thus he told how, at the age of eight, when he was already going to school, he still clung about his nurse and loved to bear her breasts and take suck. One day he was told he was a perverted imp and so was shamed out of the trick. At 27 he was caught by the passion for philosophy. He was directed to the most highly reputed professors to be found at Alexandria, but he used to come from their lectures saddened and discouraged. A friend to whom he opened his heart divined his temperamental craving and suggested Ammonius, whom he had not yet tried. Plotinus went, heard a lecture, and exclaimed to his comrade, this was the man I was looking for. From that day he followed Ammonius continuously, and under his guidance made such progress in the philosophy that he became eager to investigate the Persian methods and the system adopted among the Indians. It happened that the Emperor Gordian was at that time preparing his campaign against Persia. Plotinus joined the army and went on the expedition. He was then 38, for he had passed 11 entire years under Ammonius. When Gordian was killed in Mesopotamia, it was only with great difficulty that Plotinus came off safe to Antioch. At 40, in the reign of Philip, he settled in Rome. Irenaeus, Origen, and Plotinus had made a compact not to disclose any of the doctrines which Ammonius had revealed to them. Plotinus kept the faith, and in all his intercourse with his associates divulged nothing of Ammonius' system. But the compact was broken, first by Irenaeus, and then by Argen who followed suit. Argen, it is true, put in writing nothing but the treatise on the spirit beings, and in Gallienus' reign that entitled the king the sole creator. Plotinus himself remained a long time without writing, but he began to base his conferences on what he had gathered from his studies under Ammonius. In this way, writing nothing but constantly conferring with a certain group of associates, he passed ten years. He used to encourage his hearers to put questions, liberty which, as Aemilius told me, led to a great deal of wandering and futile talk. Aemilius had entered the circle in the third year of Philip's reign, the third, too, of Plotinus' residence in Rome, and remained about him until the first year of Claudius, twenty-four years in all. He had come to Plotinus after an efficient training under Lysimachus, in laborious diligence, he surpassed all his contemporaries. For example, he transcribed and arranged nearly all the works of Nemenius, and was not far from having most of them off by heart. He also took notes of the conferences, and wrote them out in something like a hundred treatises, which he has since presented to Hostilianus Hesychius of Apamea, his adopted son. I arrived from Greece in the tenth year of Gallienus' reign, accompanied by Antonius of Rhodes, and found Aemilius an eighteen years associate of Plotinus, but still lacking the courage to write anything except for the notebooks, which had not reached their century. Plotinus, in this tenth year of Gallienus, was about fifty-nine, when I first met him I was thirty. From the first year of Gallienus Plotinus had begun to write upon such subjects as had arisen at the conferences, 
When I first came to know him in this tenth year of the reign he had composed twenty-one treatises. They were, as I was able to establish, by no means given about freely. The distribution was still grudging and secret, those that obtained them had passed the strictest scrutiny. Plotinus had given no titles to these treatises, everybody headed them for himself. I cite them here under the titles, which finally prevailed, quoting the first words of each to facilitate identification. I had been, it is true, in Rome a little before this tenth year of Gallienus, but at that time Plotinus was taking a summer holiday, engaging merely in conversation with his friends. After coming to know him I passed six years in close relation with him. Many questions were threshed out in the conferences of those six years and, under persuasion from Aemilius and myself, he composed two treatises to establish that the authentic existent is universally an integral, self-identical unity. In immediate succession to these, he composed two more, one is entitled, that there is no intellectual act in the principle which transcends the authentic existent, on the nature that has the intellectual act primally, and that which has it secondarily, the other, 25, on potentiality and actuality, according to the time of writing early manhood, vigorous prime, worn out constitution so the tractates vary in power. The first 21 pieces manifest a slighter capacity, the talent being not yet matured to the fullness of nervous strength. The 24 produced in the mid-period display the utmost reach of the powers, and except for the short treatises among them, attain the highest perfection. The last nine were written when the mental strength was already waning, and of these, the last four show less vigor even than the five preceding. Plotinus had a large following, notable among the more zealous students, really devoted to philosophy, was Aemilius of Tuscany, whose family name was Gentilianus. Aemilius preferred to call himself Amerius, changing L for R, because, as he explained, it suited him better to be named from Amriae, unification, than from Amelia, indifference. The group included also one Paulinus, a doctor of Cyphopolis, whom Amelius used to call Macaulos in allusion to his blundering habit of mind. Among closer personal friends was Eustochius of Alexandria, also a doctor, who came to know Plotinus towards the end of his life, and attended him until his death. Eutochius consecrated himself exclusively to Plotinus' system, and became a veritable philosopher. Then there was Zodocus, at once critic and poet, who has amended the text of Antimachus' works, and is the author of an exquisite poem upon the Atlantis story. His sight failed, and he died a little before Plotinus, as also did Paulinus. Another friend was Zethus, an Arabian by descent, who married a daughter of Ammonius' friend Theodosius. Zethus, too, was a doctor. Plotinus was deeply attached to him, and was always trying to divert him from the political career in which he stood high. Plotinus was on the most familiar terms with him, and used to stay with him at his country place, six miles from Minturni, a property which had formerly belonged to Castricius Firmus. Castricius was excelled by none of the group in appreciation of the finer side of life. He venerated Plotinus, he devoted himself in the most faithful comradeship to Aemilius in every need, and was in all matters as loyal to myself as though I were his brother. 
This was another example of a politician venerating the philosopher. There were also among Plotinus' hearers, not a few members of the Senate, amongst whom Marcellus Orontius and Sabinillus showed the greatest assiduity in philosophical studies. Another senator, Rogatianus, advanced to such detachment from political ambitions that he gave up all his property, dismissed all his slaves, renounced every dignity, and, on the point of taking up his praetorship, the lictors already at the door, refused to come out or to have anything to do with the office. He even abandoned his own house, spending his time here and there at these friends and acquaintances, sleeping and eating with them and taking, at that, only one meal every other day. He had been a victim of gout, carried in a chair, but this new regime of abstinence and abnegation restored his health, he had been unable to stretch out his hands, he came to use them as freely as men living by manual labor. Plotinus took a great liking to Rogatianus and frequently praised him very highly, holding him up as a model to those aiming at the philosophical life. Then there was Serapion, an Alexandrian, who began life as a professional orator and later took to the study of philosophy, but was never able to conquer the vices of avarice and usury. Porphyry of Tyre was one of Plotinus' very closest friends, and it was to me he entrusted the task of revising his writings. Such revision was necessary, Tinus could not bear to go back on his work even for one rereading, and indeed the condition of his sight would scarcely allow it. His handwriting was slovenly, he misjoined his words, he cared nothing about spelling, his one concern was for the idea, in these habits, to our general surprise, he remained unchanged to the very end. He used to work out his design mentally from first to last, when he came to set down his ideas, he wrote out at one jet all he had stored in the mind as though he were copying from a book. Interrupted, perhaps, by someone entering on business, he never lost hold of his plan, he was able to meet all the demands of the conversation, and still keep his train of thought. He never looked over what he had previously written his sight, it has been mentioned, did not allow of such rereading but he linked on what was to follow as if no distraction had occurred. Thus he was able to live at once within himself and for others. He never relaxed from his interior attention unless in sleep, and even his sleep was kept light by an abstemiousness that often prevented him taking as much as a piece of bread, and by this unbroken concentration upon his own highest nature, several women were greatly attached to him amongst them Gemina, in whose house he lived, and her daughter, called Gemina, too, after the mother, and Amphiclia, the wife Ariston, son Iamblichus, all three devoted themselves assiduously to philosophy. Not a few men and women of position, on the approach of death, had left their boys and girls, with all their property, in his care, feeling that with Plotinus for the guardian the children would be in holy hands. His house, therefore, was filled with lads' lasses, amongst them Potamon, in whose education he took such interest as often to hear the boy recite verses of his composition. He always found time for those that came to submit returns of the children's property, and he looked closer to the accuracy of the accounts, until the young people take to philosophy, he used to say, their fortunes and revenues must be kept intact for them 
And yet all this labor and thought over the worldly interests of so many people never interrupted, during waking hours, his intention towards the Supreme. He was gentle and always at the call of those having the slightest acquaintance with him. After spending 26 years in Rome, acting, too, as arbiter in many differences, he had never made an enemy of any citizen. Among those making a profession of philosophy at Rome was one Olympus, an Alexandrian, who had been for a little while a pupil of Ammonius. This man's jealous envy showed itself in continual insolence, and finally, he grew so bitter that he even ventured sorcery, seeking to crush Plotinus by star spells. But he found his experiments recoiling upon himself, and he confessed to his associates that Plotinus possessed a mighty soul, so powerful, as to be able to hurl every assault back upon those that sought his ruin. Plotinus had felt the operation, and declared that at that moment Olympus' limbs were convulsed, and his body shriveling like a money bag pulled tight. Olympus, perceiving on several attempts that he was endangering himself rather than Plotinus, desisted. Plotinus possessed by birth something more than is accorded to other men. An Egyptian priest who had arrived in Rome and, through some friend, had been presented to the philosopher, became desirous of displaying his powers to him, and he offered to evoke a visible manifestation of Plotinus' presiding spirit. Plotinus readily consented, and the evocation was made in the Temple of Isis, the only place, they say, which the Egyptians could find pure in Rome. At the summons, a divinity appeared, not a being of the spirit ranks, and the Egyptian exclaimed, You are singularly graced. The guiding spirit within you is not of the lower degree, but a god. It was not possible, however, to interrogate, or even to contemplate this god any further, for the priest's assistant, who had been holding the birds to prevent them flying away, strangled them, whether through jealousy or in terror. Thus Plotinus had for an indwelling spirit a being of the more divine degree, and he kept his divine spirit unceasingly intent upon that inner presence. It was this preoccupation that led him to write his treatise upon our tutelary spirit, an essay in the explanation of the differences among spirit guides. Amelius was scrupulous in observing the day of the new moon and other holy days, and once asked Plotinus to join in some such celebration. Plotinus refused, it is for those beings to come to me, not for me to go to them. What was in his mind in so lofty an utterance we could not explain to ourselves, and we dared not ask him. This is brought to you by The Praetorian, on both YouTube and Facebook. Listen to our podcast on any of these platforms. Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify. Support us on Patreon. Thanks for stopping by. We thank you for your participation. If you enjoyed please like, subscribe, share, make comments. We love feedback.